Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I'm going to read from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. We started a new series last week, a series called Jesus Calling, Letters to the Seven Churches. And before we get to chapter 2, Will is going to be preaching that for us next week. Here is uh, the second half of chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace." His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by doing something just a little bit different as we look at this together. I just want to help us, as we have in front of us here, not just a book of words. We have in front of us here a book of seeings. Did you notice that in verse 11? That John is told not to write what he hears in a book, but to write what he sees in a book. Do you notice that? Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. So the the book of Revelation and what it has for us here, the book of Revelation uses what John saw to show us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Remember, we saw that last week, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, is an unveiling. It is a revealing of who Jesus is, a a pulling back of the curtains of time and space and reality to show us not just the same Jesus who we know and love from his earthly ministry, 
No, now to show us this same Jesus in his glorified, exalted heavenly ministry. And to show us that, John gives us a picture book, a a portrait gallery of Jesus. And he paints his pictures of Jesus in this letter that we're going to look at. He paints his pictures in two ways, by numbers and by symbols. Numbers and symbols. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You see the numbers and the symbols. Numbers tell us, in the book of Revelation, numbers tell us about the nature of things more than they actually tell us about the number of things. Okay? So, just like in English, you might say to your kids, look, I've you know, in in frustration and exasperation, look, I've told you this a dozen times. Well, the way that works is because the word dozen means 12, of course, doesn't it? But when you say that to somebody in exasperation, you are not really saying to them, are you, the number of times I've told you this divides exactly by 12. No, you're saying, look, I've told you this often enough. I've told you loads of times. I have sailed the seven seas to find you. I've sailed the seven seas to find you. Well, that that use of the, the phrase, the number seven, that's like the number seven in the Bible. Seven means completeness. It means wholeness. It's Seven is the perfect number, the ideal number, whole. I've traveled the whole world to get to you. Seven lampstands and seven stars. Whatever the lampstands and the stars represent, we're going to, we'll come to that in a bit, whatever they represent, the number means the total of those things, the, the complete number of all those things in all their entirety. Now, I want to show you that this is not foreign to us, actually. We know about this today. Here's a picture of the number seven being used to make a point. Do you remember this from the rule of six? I can't remember when it was, sometime last year. Uh, We were told it was big news at the time. Seven people not allowed to meet up due to COVID restrictions. And here the artist has taken a symbol from our world, seven dwarves, and drawn a picture about the significance of the number, what happens when the number seven is broken up and so on. The picture is speaking. In our culture, we look at the picture and we smile and we say, I get it. I know what the artist is saying. Here's another example. Revelation uses symbols to represent things. We're going to come across them all the way through this book. Lampstands, stars, swords, beasts, dragons, scrolls, lambs, lions. And again, I want to help us as we begin to look at this picture book together. I want to help us realize that this is not all foreign to us. Not as foreign as we might think. So look, here's another picture that I got, just got from the internet last week. And look what's happening in the picture. Here are four symbols that we all recognize. A flag representing a country. Animals representing other countries. That's what Revelation does. It takes symbols And it puts them beside each other to let them speak to each other. So the headline that went with this picture on your screen was something like, USA set to dominate China, Russia, and the rest of the world. The picture speaks a thousand words, doesn't it? 
What about this picture? If this picture was in the book of Revelation, I think the verses would say something like this. And behold, I saw a man and the four corners of the earth were placed upon his back and he was bent low to the ground. Dramatic description. Behold, I saw a man, the four corners of the earth placed upon his back. He was bent low to the ground. Well, when this picture appeared in our press, here's the headline that went with it. See what, see what it's saying? Yes, he's president now, Joe Biden, President Biden. But look at the scale of the problems he's taken on. Would anyone envy his position? Global problems. Can he carry the weight of the world? Can he solve the world's problems? Now, you and I know what all of these pictures that we've looked at together, you and I know what these pictures mean because they come from our world, our everyday life, the culture that we live in. But when it comes to Revelation, opening this book, the the pictures in front of us initially are different, aren't they? They're unusual. And the key really is for us simply to know where these symbols come from. So as we begin this series, I want to give you a very simple interpretive clue, an interpretive guide, a, a, a guide rail, if you like, which is what we must always follow as we're reading any part of the Bible. And it's hugely important here in Revelation. Here's the guardrail. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let the Bible interpret itself. Very often in Revelation, we're actually told what the symbols mean. So look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, here's the interpretation, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, we're not always told explicitly what these symbols are meant to mean in Revelation itself, but where we're not told that, nearly always somewhere else in the Bible will explain it, nearly always. So the book of Revelation, as we read it together, will remain a closed book to us if we're not also reading our Old Testaments alongside it. The the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus who speaks to him are immersed in the Scriptures. The, the, The images and pictures of the Old Testament are what fill their horizon as Jesus speaks and as John sees and as he writes. So much of the symbols in Revelation are Bible symbols. They're not plucked out of thin air. They're from the Old Testament. They they carry a beautiful world of meaning. So, So let me show you now today in our passage. Let me try and show you all of this together. Last week I said that this amazing book is all about one thing. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And I read one commentator this week who who pointed out that the verb to triumph... The the verb to conquer, to win, that verb comes 28 times in the New Testament and 17 of those occurrences are here in the book of Revelation. 28 in total, 17 here. See See the emphasis of the book? This commentator said, if the book of Revelation had a symbol, if you were going to pick a symbol and stick it on top of the book of Revelation, the symbol would be the one that some of you are wearing today as you're sitting at home, the Nike swoosh on your shoe or on your jumper or somewhere. The the Nike symbol, it's the Greek word for victory, to, to succeed, to triumph. This is a book about how the Lamb wins. 
how Jesus triumphs. This is a book about what that victory looks like, why it happens, how it happens, what it means and doesn't mean. So in our time together today, I just want to give us two reasons from Revelation 1, 9 to 20, two reasons why Jesus wins. Simple reasons. Number one, Jesus wins because of who he is. Jesus wins because of who he is. Number two, Jesus wins because of where he rules. Jesus wins because of who he is, and Jesus wins because of where he rules. And what John does in writing Revelation, he gives us both of these truths in picture form. And truth in picture form is some of the most wonderful truth we have, isn't it? A lion, a witch, a wardrobe. Pictures speak a thousand words, and sometimes pictures from another world, well, maybe they speak 10,000 words. John sees a picture here from another world. This, this language in verse 13, he sees someone, doesn't he, like a son of man. It's a phrase that the Lord Jesus used to describe himself on earth. It's, it's a phrase that comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel. It describes a mysterious, exalted human figure, exalted who, well, to the point that he almost seems to act and behave like God himself. And you see here, it's as if John is given a glimpse of the glory of Christ in heaven, in all his glory. And then with each stroke of his brush as he's painting, he's telling us here from verse 13 onwards, telling us something about who Jesus is. A long robe, clothed with a long robe, probably suggests a priestly robe. Robes often symbolize purity, don't they, in the Bible? The robe is down to his feet long. So he's he's completely covered. He, he's covered in purity, completely pure. He's wearing a, a golden sash. Here is someone with wealth and beauty, someone with exalted status. Look at his, look at his hair, his head. It is white like wool, white like snow. In, in our culture, we tend to look down on white-haired people, don't we? All the publicity about Joe Biden being president. How old is this man? Age is something to make us shrink back. Not so in other cultures. The the white-haired get the seats of honor at the banquet. In the Bible, white hair is a picture of wisdom. Bronze feet are strong feet. You're not going to knock this person down. Eyes of fire. Fire is always a picture of judgment in the Bible. Cleansing, purity. Fire consumes, doesn't it? But it, it also burns away dross and leaves something pure on the other side. In his right hand, seven stars. Well, verse 20, we read it. It tells us seven angels and out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword, his voice like the sound of Niagara Falls. This man's mouth, his word is powerful in reach, isn't it? Like a waterfall, but it is also powerful in effect. You see it, the sword, it can cut you open. So, So look, says John to us here as he he takes a step back from his canvas and he he looks at all these parts of his picture. What he's saying to us is, can you see why Jesus wins? Can you see why he triumphs? Here's how I would put it. Jesus wins in this picture. Jesus wins because he is a king who rules the world with perfect, pure and mighty judgment. 
Jesus is a king who rules the world with perfect, pure, and mighty judgment. That's who Jesus is here, isn't he? This is a picture of a king. And what he does is that he rules, but he rules perfectly, with purity, with might. Many people today in our world win, don't they? Because they have might. Many people win through might, but they are not pure. And as they win, they crush others and push others to the side. They they win unjustly. Not Jesus. Not our Lord Jesus. Some people in our world are meek, aren't they? They they are pure. They only want a peaceful protest. And the reality is that they are not powerful. They they will not bring about change. Their voices, one in a, a cacophony of voices, they're drowned out. Pure, peaceful, but not powerful. Not Jesus, friends. Not the Lord Jesus. See what John is saying? He is covered in whiteness. There is nothing impure, nothing unjust, nothing tainted about him. He shines brighter than the sun. His eyes blaze with searching judgment, consuming all that is evil. But he is not weak. He is not just pure. He is mighty. You know, I'm told when when you stand at the foot of Niagara Falls... And you stand there and see it in all its glory. You cannot even speak to the person right beside you. They won't hear you. They can't hear what you're saying. John says, well, that noise of Niagara Falls, that will be just like turning on your bathroom tap compared to the power and the majesty of Jesus' voice. John sees a king who can speak his rule out into his world, all the world, perfectly, justly, powerfully. That's who Jesus is. You know, here we are today, Sunday, 24th of January. Here we are with Joe Biden in the USA, a new president. And here we are again, friends. I watched it on our TV on Wednesday. Here we are again, once again, the hope, the optimism. Out with the old, in with the new. Finally a change. Isn't that what people are doing on Wednesday? Breathing a sigh of relief, finally a change, finally the man we want, finally a savior, right? Really? Don't don't we want to say we've been here before? Here we are today in our world with the vaccine being rolled out throughout the United Kingdom. It's a wonderful thing to see. It's working its way across the world. Well, did you see the headline this past week from the World Health Organization? The BBC said the World Health Organization are warning of catastrophic moral failure. The the headline really stood out to me. Everything is catastrophe, isn't it? Catastrophe of deadlines and infection numbers and uh, bumpy supply of the vaccine. But this was different. Catastrophic moral failure because of inequalities in vaccine supply. The rich will win. The poor will come last. Won't won't this vaccine just prove that again? Won't it just end up like everything else? The strong and the rich and the powerful, they will go first internationally. The countries and the nations that are weak and poor and oppressed will lag behind. Watch as men and women push themselves to the front of the queue. 
Me first, you last. Oh, we will display again to the world, won't we, that we do not know how to rule well. We do not know how to rule well. Here in Revelation chapter 1 in picture form is the control room of the universe, friends. And Jesus is in charge. Jesus wins because he sees everything purely. From here he speaks his word powerfully about what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. Somebody said, you know, of course, this is not a picture of what Jesus looks like. But it is a picture of what he is like. I love that. This is not a picture of what Jesus looks like, but it is a picture of what he is like. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. These lampstands, verse 20 says, they're a picture of the church, aren't they? Shining lights in the darkness. A beautiful picture for the church. A lampstand. A city set on a hill. A light in the darkness. Seven lampstands. The number of completeness. So what John is seeing here is all the churches in all the world at all time, the completeness of them, the totality of them. And where is Jesus? That's the important thing in this image. Where is the Lord Jesus? This Jesus of awesome glory and power. Is he way above us, miles away from us? In the midst. In the midst. It's a beautiful phrase. This is not a picture of what Jesus looks like. It's a picture of what he is like. He is a glorious king who is the closest of friends. He's not in quarantine, is he? He's not in self-isolation during the COVID pandemic. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. He's with you today. He's with me. He's with us. See, the the priest's job in the temple was to keep the light burning, wasn't it? He was always to be there, the the lamps always to be burning in the presence of God. And the, the, the priest's job was to be there, tending the lamp, keeping them going. So here is Jesus tending to his lampstands. Here he is going round them one by one, trimming the wicks, checking the oil. That, that one over there is nearly out and he keeps it going. The Lord of the church is our high priest. It's why we have these, why we're about to have these seven letters to seven churches. Here is what Jesus wants to say to his church to keep their lights burning. Some of these churches are in Very poor condition indeed. They are in a sorry state. And the Lord Jesus comes close and speaks. He's in their midst. You know, I know that some of you watching feel like all the evidence is against you. You are on the outside of where you should be in life. You are not yet who you think you should be or could be or who you want to be. All you see day by day and maybe lockdown and this uh, bleak t- season that we're in compounds it all. All you see is your own feelings, your own sin. New year, but same old me. John says, in God's presence is a priest, a high priest. He is mediating between you and God, between your Father, representing you to God. And this priest is pure. You see it? He is perfect, complete. He is whole. And he is speaking to you, to you and to me. 
Jesus is speaking to his church and Jesus is staying with his church. He will not leave you in 2021, come what may. So point number one, Jesus triumphs because of who he is. Here's the second thing that John wants us to see. Number two, Jesus wins because look where he rules. Jesus wins because look where he rules. Look at verse 17 with me. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. You know, you know I think verse 17 is remarkable. This letter is written, isn't it, to suffering Christians, suffering believers. Just look back at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is saying, I'm right with you in these difficult days, friends, suffering Christians. Many were being martyred. Maybe it is that some of them were being lit on fire in Emperor Nero's gardens, thrown to the lions. Certainly we know that these believers are under pressure. And yet when Jesus says, fear not, verse 17, isn't it incredible? When he says, fear not, he is not saying it. Don't be scared of persecution. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying, don't be scared of me. Don't be scared of me. It's amazing. Friends, if you've never thought of being scared of Jesus, you do not know the Jesus of the Bible. If you've, you've never felt, never felt awe and wonder in his presence, you haven't met him, haven't seen him. Oh, this is what it means to be a Christian, verse 17, to come face to face with the Lord Jesus and to fall at his feet. Surely, surely the sight of him will be too much for me. Surely my own sin in his presence will be enough to have me cast out away from him forever. Surely this is the end of me. That's what John feels, doesn't he? Listen to this. Here's how someone put it this week. Someone I read. I just love this. Here's what they said. They said, the two primary ways to know God, the two primary ways to know God are the odd perception of his holiness and my own sense of utter dependence. If you want to know who God is, you need to know his awesome holiness and my own sense of utter dependence upon him. God is holy and I am a sinner. And then this person said, those two things not only require expression in worship, okay, so you, you cannot, you, you, you have to get them out in worship. You, you have to express them. But this person said, those two things not only require expression in worship, you cannot truly experience them except as worship. You cannot experience them except as worship. Do you see that? It's, it's not just that we say to God in worship or in song, the confession of sin, the call to worship, the song that we've had already. It's not just that we say to him in those words, you are holy and I am a sinner. No, more than that, the only way you can truly know those two things is in worshiping him. In, in falling before, in knowing that that is true about yourself. 
That, that's what John is doing here, isn't he? Falling as though dead in worship. He's not simply saying words to God. He sees himself, abases himself, falls before him. Isaiah, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, to the Lord Jesus, not even the Lord Jesus in his heavenly glory, the Lord Jesus on earth, standing beside him. Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know, brothers and sisters, this is what I long for you most of all today. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're watching, whatever your circumstances, this is what I long for for you, to come close to this Lord Jesus, to have this kind of annihilation of self and this kind of worship of him. Because when we do that, what does Jesus say? What does he say to John here? Away from me. Leave, be gone. I want nothing more to do with you. Leave my presence. What are you doing here in my presence? No. Verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me. The the right hand, the hand of strength, the hand of fellowship. See what's happening here? It is the glory of Jesus that makes way for the grace of Jesus. The the beautiful picture of him in all his heavenly power that makes his coming close in grace all the more amazing and wonderful. And so I just want to finish with this. Look where Jesus rules. Look where he rules. You, You can tell here in these verses, you can tell it in life anywhere. You can tell where someone rules by what they have access to what they have the keys to. You can tell where they are in life with what they've got in their hand. Come back to my house, the 10-year-old boy says to his friends, look, come back after school to my house. We'll we'll play football in the garden. We'll eat crisps. We'll drink Coke. Then we'll play in the computer. We'll watch TV. My mum won't mind. Come on, come back to my house. But as the 10-year-old boy and his friend trudge home and they make it back to this guy's house, they reach for the door And they ring the doorbell and there's no answer. And they ring again and ring again and mom is out. It's his house, isn't it? Yes, sort of. But he's not in charge, is he? He doesn't have the keys to the house. He doesn't have his own key yet at 10 years old. Keys in your hand show you the extent of your rule, don't they? Keys are all about authority and power. Brexit holds the key to number 10 for leaders of big business. Don't even know what that means. No idea what that means, but it's a headline that we see, isn't it? We use language like this all the time. There it was on Wednesday. Biden has the keys to the White House. Somebody has the keys to the nuclear code. The prince wins the keys of the kingdom. That's how the world works. And where you have the keys, you rule Where you can get access to keys, you exercise your influence. You want to know why Jesus wins, John says. Says to us today, you want to know why Jesus wins? I'll tell you, because he rules from an empty grave. He rules from an empty tomb, a defeated tomb. He entered death itself and came out the other side. And as he came out, he stands there with the keys of death itself. The keys of the grave. See what he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And there is no one, no one else on earth who has keys to the grave, do they? No one. Now, we we all want them, don't we? We're desperate to get the keys. That's why the gyms are full. 
Everybody's trying to get the keys to the grave, to hold on to them. Not, not that long ago, I, I read about transhumanism. California-based movement whose core belief is that humans can use technology to evolve beyond our current limitations. Peter Thiel, the man who uh, you've sent money to this week in a hundred different ways as you've used PayPal, the founder of PayPal. Peter Thiel has pumped millions into the cause of extending his own life. Biohacking, artificial intelligence. He's using everything he possibly can to help him live forever, maybe to come back from beyond the grave one day. And here's the thing, to get the keys of death, everybody does it by trying to extend life, adding years on at the end. That's how we try to get the keys of death. See what John says, Jesus got the keys by entering death and coming out the other side of it. Death lay dead behind him. He robbed it. Here I am, he says, holding the keys of death and hell, standing in the control room of the universe. Look what I've got in my hand. Can you see it? You know, friends, at some point, we all stand by a grave, don't we? We all stand by a grave. There's probably no greater claim to the keys of death than a freshly dug grave. There it lies in front of us, a hole in the ground. It's as if the earth is saying to us, I've got you, you're mine. And yet, Christian people, we stand at gravesides, don't we? I've seen them do it. I've done it myself with tears and broken hearts. I've seen Christian people say to one another, at the graveside, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Yes, the mouth of the grave is open, but its teeth have been pulled. The door of this grave is about to be shut. The door will be closed, but my Jesus holds the keys. Oh, friends, today he has the keys of death and hell. And because of that, Jesus rules. And Jesus wins. You know, wherever you're watching today, however this finds you, I want... As we're, we're going to see often through this book, this will be a, a recurring application. I want you again, dear, dear friends, to hide yourself in Christ. Hide yourself in the Lamb who is here unveiled to be the victorious lion. The man of sorrows here revealed to be the Son of Man from heaven. The perfect, pure high priest who knows, who knows everything about you and offers up to God for you, his perfect life. Oh, brothers and sisters, hide yourself again today in Christ. Amen.